Welcome to the fourth of Analytics podcasts on investment skill. My name is Rick Damasio and I'm the Chief Exec of Analytics and I'm joined by the data scientist and sports psychologist Tim Hartless. In this episode we'll be discussing the topic of using data for performance improvement. Uh, the last podcast was on the uses and abuses of data and we were dealing with some of the really important topics of being able to, or the essential um, need to present data within context, but also to very much focus on the needs of the person who's actually receiving and using this. Yeah. This time, what I'd like to do is is focus on the um, actual data itself, yes. and the use of data, and talk specifically about some of the issues that we see in the investment world. Yes, Rick, I think we found last week that we started talking about data, but we really became interested in how people respond to data. Today, it's going to be about the actual data processes. Let's kick off by sort of starting at the beginning, as it were, Yeah. which is the nature of investment skill. So historically, people have thought that and have viewed investment skill as some mercurial talent that's God-given yeah. and essentially... Unmeasurable. Unmeasurable. Thank you, Tim. But actually, that's it's not, not the case. unmeasurable. It's just it's hard the, to measure. It's hard to measure. Exactly right. But it is absolutely capable of being quantified and analysed. In order to get the discussion going, I think what we ought to do is start by talking about the nature of investment skill. What does a skillful elite fund manager actually do? What what constitutes success? What are the pillars of their talent? So first and foremost. Every investment process starts with research. Research is where they get investigated in the first instance. And then critically, it's where the best of those ideas, how the best of those ideas get into the portfolio. And then the second stage is is what we call conviction or sizing. And in plain, plain English, all that means is that you back your, your best ideas appropriately, because there's no point. There's no point having a great idea if you don't put sufficient capital behind it and right. you don't back it with conviction. So the, the 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 second of the of the pillars as it were is the ability to back your research ideas with conviction. Right. And then the next two are sort of things to avoid that we see all the time in the data. The first one is which was the subject of that very popular paper, Selling Fast and Buying Slow, which is that typically fund managers lose about 100 basis points or 1% per annum through poor selling decisions. Wow. And then the second thing, the second thing to avoid is very often we see that long term holding. So, a, you know, a stock which has been in the portfolio for maybe three, four, five and even a lot longer number yeah. of years um, is that those positions can get very stale and actually the best of the returns were actually in the early period of the holding. And, right. and in simple terms, the holding just gets past its sell by date. In in summary, the the structure and is very much based around the decisions which fund managers actually take, and what yes. we see as a criteria for success, which is having a great research process, backing those research ideas with conviction, not losing that that value that you've created through research in the first place and making sure that your ideas remain fresh and relevant and have not passed their sell-by date. 
That's really interesting, Rick. And you've taken something that previously was considered to be intangible and you've and you've derived four clearly defined ideas from it that are measurable. That's right. And I would say that the process of turning them into four clearly defined um, components has been of enormous benefit to both ourselves and our clients. Right. In the sense that, 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 it, that what that's done is that it's brought to life the topic which we discussed in the last podcast, which was context. Okay. So now the recipient of the data understands why each piece of information that we're presenting to them, why we're presenting to them and, and how they're supposed to slot it into what they already understand. You know, Rick, one of the questions that I get asked sometimes when I present data or a data proposal to somebody for the first time is, what is this for? What is the purpose of this data? And I think looking at what you're doing, you're taking uh, information that, first of all, is relevant, um, that people need to know about these four skills. They need to know how well they're doing research. They need to know how well they're backing uh, their research with conviction. They need to know if they're making unnecessary losses, either because of the way that they sell or because they're allowing things to go stale. So that would be the first element that I think is important is that the data that you are giving to somebody is relevant. But there's something else as well. And I think this is really the, the neatness of the way that you've packaged this is that this information is also actionable. Because once you've identified um, whether it is a research process, a conviction process, a selling process, or even just monitoring your holdings, that leads directly into action. And it means that you can adjust your processes in order to make sure that your uh, operations are optimal. That's right. And both relevant and actionable. And they can see, so such as that in the case of the last of the four pillars, the um, what we call alpha decay or you know, making sure your positions haven't uh, not passed their sell-by date, is that is that by shining the light to show that a lot of the alpha, sorry, alpha is a technical term, a lot of the returns were actually generated in the first year or two of the holding when they'd just completed the research and the idea was really fresh and relevant. And then basically the, you know, the stock just yeah. sort of goes sideways and gets tired and, and being able to say, well, you know, intuitively, this is what's happening. And okay. here is the data. And really what we're saying is we're not saying in a Pavlovian yeah. sense, just sell anything that you've held for more than three years, six months, because that'd be nonsense. But what we're saying is just make sure that the research process is as active and as diligent on these long-term positions mm. as it is on your, on your new research ideas. And I firmly believe that research is the cornerstone of any investment process. Yeah. If the process doesn't identify and add winners to the portfolio, it's very difficult for, for anything else to make up the difference. Yeah. So, so you know, the research process is absolutely critical. And the interesting thing about the research process and the important thing about the research process mm -hmm. is, that it in, is that it very often will involve different teams of people coming together. Yeah. So they will be research analysts, um, they will be um, what we call quant teams who are basically crunching and screening large numbers of stocks. Right. And then ultimately, it's it's the portfolio managers 
um, decision as to whether the stock goes in the portfolio. Yeah. So what we found is that is that although research in a in an abstract way is an essential part of the process, in order for the process to be effective, it involves the interaction of a considerable number of all people. using the data and and human relationships and interaction is is very important. So take for example a specific example where you know an analyst may come up with a great idea. Yeah. Um, they put a buy recommendation on it and they're all fired up expecting, you know, the, the, the portfolio managers to see the light and, and start buying the stock and adding it to the portfolio. Yeah. And sometimes we find that actually the portfolio manager doesn't do that at all. Right. And this is where data can this is where data can shine a light on the process, because without data, you would never know whether the portfolio manager has implemented that decision or not. And Rick? When you talk about that decision, how do you measure that decision? How do you reach an objective judgment of what's happened? Well, at the, at, at, at the top level, there is, as in all things, that there is one critical set of decisions. And that for us is, for equity portfolios, that is what we call an opening buy. And that okay. is when um, a stock is added to the portfolio for the first time. So in other words, it wasn't held yesterday, a buying order goes in and it's now held today or tomorrow. The reason why that's so important and is an absolute pivotal point in the, in the, in the research process, and in fact, the entire investment process, is that in order for a new stock to get added to the portfolio, it must, by definition, have been thoroughly researched and thought about. Okay. And when a new stock gets added to the portfolio, it's a very powerful statement as to what the portfolio manager, the researchers and the, the, whole, the whole process believes in because they've added that name on that day as distinct from anything else that they could have done. Okay. And, and it is almost a tautology. It has to have been researched, otherwise it wouldn't have gone into the portfolio in the first place. That's because your proof. It's been Because it's been added to the portfolio, it captures a moment in time and that yeah. moment in time can then be assessed and evaluated and so how do you know, know how, that the st- how how well, do you know that, how do you measure well of course because of course the great thing about fine about the, about financial markets is that everything has a price so the stock goes into the portfolio at 100 yeah and we know that in the past it may have been 80 or it may have been 120. So they may have bought it after it's gone up a lot or when it had gone down a lot. Okay. But, but more importantly, and this is what you really want to know, is well, what happens next? Yeah. So we know the trade price and we know every subsequent price thereafter. So we're able then to assess that we're able to then calculate the return on that idea from that moment onwards for any time period that's relevant. Measurable, so accurate. if a portfolio manager has a high degree of turnover, then the investment horizon will be brought shorter. Okay. If, if they have a very low turnover and they hold stocks for three, five years, then we can, we will measure that over three and five year time period. So, so that's your measure of researchability. That's the primary measure. And then it then gets into the much, you know, much more granular detail.
what about the analysts? How do you measure them? Well, then, then we're talking about actually capturing the analyst process. So instead of instead of capturing the moment when the stock gets added to the portfolio, yeah. we capture the moment when the analyst makes a, a buy or a sell recommendation, okay. and we treat it in exactly the same way. I'd like to say just very, you know, for a very very briefly, I'd like to say that the opposite decision, which is the closing sell, which is when you remove when you take a stock out of the portfolio is equally successful and is equally research-based. And I think, you know, we've mentioned on several occasions that the selling decisions are not great. And unfortunately, that proves to be the case here as well. That's what the data shows. So so for equity portfolios, then, you know, that, that first buy is an absolute critical yeah. and drives everything else, in our opinion. Okay. And of course, you know, the PMs, portfolio managers mm. will recognize that yeah because because that's what they're thinking about they're thinking about new ideas all the time they're thinking about which ones go in the portfolio they want to know whether whether the new ideas which get added are actually working or not yeah and you know once again you know back to one of the earlier points one of the earlier podcasts the mind plays tricks yes. and having the data which verifies whether it's working or not is much much more effective it guides than just you trying to guess yeah and you can see, you know, here, I mean, obviously, in your world, the equivalent would be scouts going out trying to identify the next generation of players. Talent. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and, and, and the point at which they get added to the squad or even get into the first team is a really mm. critical moment, presumably, in, in any sport, Tim. Is that, is, is that fair? Yes, we do use data. You know, in sport, it's a constant competition and we're always not just trying to do well, we're trying to do better than the next person. And I think in different sports, you get different opportunities to use data. Something like uh, the classic Moneyball baseball, for example, um, is a highly measurable sport with many discrete actions that have defined outcomes. In something like football, for example, um, it's a much less measurable sport because in a 90-minute match between 22 people, you only get say, two or three goals, which are uh, definitive events. But regardless of whether it's a highly measurable sport or a, a more nuanced sport, what we're always trying to do is take that competition data, that match data, bring it back to the training pitch and try and understand how we can use that match data to improve ourselves um, in whether it's recruiting players or actually adapting our style of play. Uh, that's right. Actually, I'd just like, just as an aside, uh, my colleague, Sandra Lungi, pointed out the differences between our two worlds, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And, and what he was saying was that, of course, in your world, sport, you can train and then you compete. And they are different moments in time. They're different activities yeah. and they're quite distinct. That's right. In our world, because financial markets are open all the time, 24-7 mm. to use the cliche, is that you're competing all the time. So so in our world... You don't get the practice time. Um, you, have to, you have to stop competing, you know, and go into a meeting, say, with the likes of us, you know, um, and, then, and then you then, you know, to yeah. absorb the data. But, you know, the curious thing is that the game is going on continually, even when you're not there. Uh, and that's a really important distinction between our two worlds, which is that in your world, training and, and competing occur at different, different points in time. In our world, you're competing all the time and you have to make a conscious decision to step off 
that in our world, it is possible to, con to, to continually evaluate a decision because prices are ticking all the time. Whereas in yours, yes. you know, it's just not the same. Yes, you've always got that information. But Rick, I, I think this distinction of um, in, in your world, you're always on, you're always competing. And I think what that means is that the, the competition is always rolling. But what it doesn't mean is that the individual has to compete all the time. And I think a, a, a good sporting analogy might be ice hockey, for example, where you get rolling substitutions because no one person can compete for the duration of an entire ice hockey match. And I think that would be critical in your world as well, is that there are times when people move away from the, the actual uh, sports field, the, the actual competition, to take time to rest and to improve. You know, there's that classic uh, Stephen Covey concept, sharpening the saw, that uh, you need to take time to actually step away from the, the live competition so that you can gather your resources, sharpen the saw. And really what we're saying is data is one of the ways of taking stock. One of the really interesting developments within our own business is that we have an equal number of, of pension funds and, and investors as we do yeah. portfolio managers. And, yes. and, and, and they're looking at the data. The data is used equally on both sides of the fence. Yes. And this is one of the things that we say to people who might be reluctant about data is someone else is looking at this data. They're seeing it. Don't you want to see it yeah, also? Yeah, well, you know, it's, 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 kept us, it's kept us going over the years. And, and, and they have different requirements. But ultimately, yeah. they all want to know the same thing, which is, you know, is there skill here? And, and if there is skill here, how do we develop and grow it? And, and, and it is about... And that's, that's the thing now, is that you can measure it. And when you can measure it, you can grow it. That's exactly right. And, and I think it's important to make the point here that historically, people have evaluated or, or made a, an assessment of whether someone was skillful or not from the track right. record or the results. But the, thing about, but the thing about track records and results is that you don't know whether that result came about through luck or judgment. Could be random. Skill, luck or skill. So you want deeper insight. And, and I, I think that fundamentally what we're doing here is that we're shifting the focus from, from the result to the process. Because it's the process which produces the result. And it's the process which gives people confidence that the result is repeatable and solid. And you know, Rick... What, what I find interesting about this is generally when you talk about process, people start to think that processes are soft skills and outcomes are the hard, measurable thing that really matters. But what you're saying with the data and with the analysis that you put onto the data, it actually gives you insight into the processes, gives you insight into the way that people are doing the job. And when you understand the way that people do things, that's actually a better predictor of the future than the past is. I'm just interested to know, what are some of the more sophisticated techniques you use to understand process? This is where um, we apply machine learning. Right. And where we found that with machine learning, it has the most extraordinary ability to identify the idiosyncratic characteristics of each individual. 
in a way that I haven't actually seen any other technique do to the yeah. same extent. And so what we're really focused on is using the technology to identify a large position and a small position because the large positions will drive the outcome. So in other words, a large position is one where you've got more money in rather than less money. So as we step through the process, as it were, we recognize that, that conviction levels are critical. There's a critical set of decisions. The, the decisions are then broken up into large and small, and everybody understands the difference between large and small. And we use uh, machine learning to determine what would constitute a large position or a small position. So for example, a large position for you could be completely different from a large position for me. You know, you're you know more risk adverse. I'm more likely to take risk. So a big position for me would be considerably larger than a big position for you. Right. And 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 machine learning technology allows us to identify the precise, you know, nature of what would be a, a, a high risk position for you against a high risk position for me. Okay. And then once once we're able to. Um, bucket the stocks into large and small then once again we come back yeah. to this 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 phenomena of, of markets which is that they're open all the time so we're then able to attribute perfectly w w where the returns are coming from 88 zero of the portfolios okay. in our database which um, are successful they're the ones where the large positions drive the outcome. So, so this is not okay. just us, yeah. you know, um, introducing a concept or a sort of theoretical proposition. We can demonstrate it with, we can show the relevance and we can demonstrate it with results. I mean, when something is okay. 80% associated with the outcome, with success, you almost think yeah. it's a tautology back to the, you know, the point you made in the previous thing about ca causality and correlation. But, you know, but I mean, it's, it's manifestly clearly associated with success. I can hear there's a little bit of humor in your voice. And that humor is actually what happens in the meetings as well, because people walk in, and they're a little bit anxious about being shown up, but they're also eager to see where these losses are happening. Because when you know where a loss is happening, that's where you can fix it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've, 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 there's um, one client that completely changed the way they, they decided which stocks to sell. And they instituted yes. a research basis, a research-based process to make those decisions. So instead of applying heuristics, and just you know just sort of jumping to conclusions they actually tied it all the way back to the research process and and it's had a phenomenal change their, their business returns. processes a phenomenal they're now in the top 10 percent right. of all us mutual and they funds. can see it and now i'm not saying that's down to us because it's you know there's lots of other things going on in there because it's a high quality outfit but they are making use of the tool that you provide a loss that's right and they did something about yeah. it they did something about yeah. it and they just got on with it and were actually in their case, they just worked it out. You know, once we'd shown them the data, they just got on and did it themselves. I mean, it was astonishing, really. That, um, that's something I find as well, is when you show the data, there's less disagreement. Well, once again, it, it comes back to this wretched business about everything, you know, is, is measurable yeah. um, in our world. So if you sell it at 100, yeah. you know, you want the thing to go down rather than up. So if, it, if you sell it at 100 and it's now 80, then that was a great decision. If you sold it at 100 
and it carries on going up to 120, then that was a bad decision. Yeah. And the only the only caveat is that you took the money and invested in something which maybe went up more. But right. you know that's that's poor consolation, really. Yes. I mean, it is it is the first line of defence that I've taken this money and I put it into something better. How well, do maybe, you know? Maybe not. Well, we measure that also, okay. unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, and usually it's new, neutral. But yeah. you know, but it, it's it. It's it's fudging the issue. Yeah. The decision itself should be better. Yeah. And then the you final... Know, Rick, on. this is one of the things that I find so interesting in both of our worlds is how people come to form opinions and how people come to make decisions. Because, you know, this is really uh, where the elite uh, individuals hope to distinguish themselves from uh, the, the rest is that they make better decisions based on superior opinions. And... You know, these opinions take different forms. Mm. I was once uh, standing with a, an elite cricket coach and we were watching a fantastic young talent who was batting. And the cricket coach suddenly turned to the other coach and made a very specific comment, which was, he can't pick the googly. And in that one moment, that player went from being considered to be a top talent to someone who was not ready to play in the next match. Um, but not all decisions get made as clearly as that. A lot of the time, uh, these decisions are more kind of growing awarenesses or, or nagging concerns that eventually uh, slowly start to surface until we eventually decide, okay, this is now something that I believe. And it's quite hard to extract an opinion like that out of data that is noisy, out of data that contains large random elements or, um, or slow forms of feedback. And I think that's where knowing what you're looking for can speed up these conclusions. Or, or if they did know it, they well, I think everyone knew it intuitively, but they would rather that they didn't. <laughs> yes. And, you know, that, that that's a kind of fascinating thing as well, is that you know yes. intuitively that, 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 that a process is not ideal. You know, I think we could have gone and we could have spoken to people and, and said, you know, how's your selling? What's going on with your selling? How much attention do you pay to a sell when you're really trying to make money, when you're really trying to raise money in order to buy? We could have asked that question and people maybe, as you say, knew it, but didn't really surface that information. Whereas what your paper did, what your data analysis did, is made that unavoidable. And then that was valuable to know. I think it is the value. Um, I, I, absolutely right. And let's not forget, and the reason why I say it is the value, because yeah. that's the purpose. The purpose is to help people make better yes. investment decisions, to use, you know, run the numbers, see, you know, see what the issues are and then change behaviours to um, um, improve performance. Yeah. Now, I would like to just make one um, one additional point on the changing behaviour yeah. point. You know, we all recognise we're good at some things and we're rubbish at others. And that's being human. And the natural inclination is to say, well, if I can just, you know, do something about the weaknesses, my weaknesses, yeah. the, the, you know, the good points will take care of themselves right. and, and the whole and, and everything rises. Yeah. We found that that is absolutely yeah. it's the strength. not the case yeah. in practice. Yeah. We found that, that it's much more effective to actually focus on strengths. Right. Now, I know that just given the example of the of the fund manager who you know turned around their selling yes. but they really are the exception and it was based on a strength because their strength was the research process yes, which they then applied and, and what we find is that when we encourage people to focus on their strengths yeah. 
and the things that they're good at, then that is much more likely to produce a great outcome. Okay. And, and that's an and, empowering and message. And I know that it's almost counterintuitive that you think we've well, got to work on your weaknesses. And I'd imagine in your world, you know, you are working on weaknesses yeah. because it yeah. might be strength, it might be resilience, it might be something, and they have a natural level of skill. But it's a team and also. you're working on the things to... Well, I don't know whether it's... I'm, I'm assuming that it's different. I don't know. Yes. But, but, you know, we find in our world that it's much easier for somebody to improve something and work on the things that they're good at yeah. rather than bad at. Yeah. Because when you when you get somebody to, to focus heavily on what they're not good at, it might be that that problem is hardwired and it might be that they're never going to fix it, in which case they get disheartened right. and you just, lose the, you, you just lose the focus and the benefit. Okay. Whereas if you focus on the things which people are good at, yeah. then you know, they're excited, they're engaged, and they want to do more of it. And it's much easier for them. Yes, trying to make well, them to make better decisions yeah. by making better use of the skills that they have. And, you know, you said in my world, and I, I think this applies in your world as well, is that for sure... Everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. But the great thing about being human beings, whether you're in a, a sports environment or whether you're in a business, is that you're almost always operating as part of a team. And part of the skill of the leader and part of the skill of the members of the team as well is to assemble themselves in a way that makes best use of really division of labor to ensure that to ensure that everybody's skills are best deployed and used to actually cover for everybody's weaknesses. And, and really, that's the point of the team is I do what I'm good at, you do what you're good at. And in fact, Rick, you know, we work as a team. That, that's how we operate. Yes, as well. no, absolutely. I mean, it, it definitely complements. And, and I think that, you know, we come from different worlds and we bring different things. And I think... Yeah, and, and that's the fun of it in a way. That's the effectiveness but, of it. But the great thing is that we both start from the same position, which is about data and and the need to improve decision and, and the use of data to improve decision making. So, Rick, the, the next question I have for you is the fourth skill, making sure that things don't go stale. How do you measure that? Well, the fourth one is, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm probably, this is probably going to get a bit, maybe a bit esoteric for some, but but essentially the really successful fund managers tend to be people who know their stocks really well but they have a relatively small number and they know those stocks backwards and what that means is that they will own them for a very long period of time now is that that in principle is a great approach there's no question i'm you know there's there's no question It, it makes a lot of sense but the problem is is that if you've made money in a stock and you've been very public about it you've spoken to your clients and and everybody's happy yeah it can be a bit difficult to sell it and because you've made a lot of money in it you sort of don't really focus to the same extent on that name because you then because there are only so many hours in the day and you're now focused on your next great idea so you can sort of park it as it were and and people have a tendency to park. They're not urgent anymore. And not worry about them to the same extent. And because they're probably decent okay. companies, they probably don't not doing them any harm. But they're no real. It's just that they're not off. generating the same incremental returns. And the, and you know and, and if this was a supermarket, you would say it's past its sell by date. So what we have is a measurement of skill, and we've got four defined, um, accurate 
objective measurements of investment skill. We've got the ability to do research. Uh, we've got the ability to size a portfolio. We've got the ability to sell as skillfully as you buy, which really means focusing properly and allocating time and resources properly to that process. And finally, we've got the challenge of making sure that there's no alpha decay, that um, existing holdings don't go stale over time. And that also means allocating time correctly. So what we're finding is that these four skills are measurable by uh, outcomes, but they intrinsically linked to processes. And I think this is a real skill of the, uh, the data analysis that you're doing, Rick, is that you're linking outcomes to processes because that gives people an opportunity to change what they do for the better. And when you can do that, when you know what it is that works, uh, you know what it is that you can improve, that's when you can get better at your job and achieve those uh, better, more consistent, more reliable, higher quality outcomes um, that obviously is anybody's that's goal. exactly it. And that's a perfect point. That's, that's a perfect point to end because it summarizes precisely yeah. the process and the objective. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Cheers. Cheers, Tim. Thanks, Rick.